Right, go for your Bibles. <coughs> Let's just pray first. Father, thank you that you communicate to us through your word. Lord, one of the many ways that you do. And Father, I pray now that your Holy Spirit will teach us. Lord, as we come to try and understand just what salvation is all about, Father, we pray that you'll make it so clear. Lord, that things that were difficult to understand will become simple. Lord, that grey areas will just be flooded with light. Father, just give us that understanding of exactly what it is that you've done for us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, well, last time in this series that we're doing on salvation, we sort of <coughs> looked at the Bible as the Word of God, as it were, we checked our sources. And really, tonight, we start the series on salvation in a proper way. And so tonight, what we're going to look at, really, is how the problem all began. We're going to look at what I call the Great Divide. And tonight, we're going to actually look at the origin of man and the origin of the sin problem. Now, throughout this course, we're going to be asking two questions. And also, we're going to be looking at three facts. Now, the two questions that we're going to answer are this. Question number one, why is man separated from God? And question number two, how has this problem been overcome? Now, the three facts that we're going to see in answering those questions are these. Number one, man can do nothing about it whatsoever. Two, God has done everything needed to overcome the problem. And three, he's done it through Jesus. Now, what I want to do to start with is to look at two or three what I call um, sort of general sort of verses which show us the territory we're going to cover. First of all, if you turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to read from verse 9. And we read this. And this is just after the early church had brought healing to someone who was crippled and they were getting into trouble and they were explaining themselves and they say this if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple by what means this man has been healed let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by him this man is standing before you well this is the stone which was rejected by you, by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. And this is it. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Turn to 1 Timothy, chapter 2. And I'm going to read verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 and we read this for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus and then lastly John 14 and verse 6 when Jesus says this I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but by me. Now that's the subject matter. That is what in this series we are going to try and get to grips with. And as we start tonight, I now want to give you two what I call umbrella scriptures. All right, Again, to give you an idea of the kind of areas that we're going to cover. If you find 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18 and 19, when Paul says this, All this is from God, who through Christ Jesus reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, God was, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then lastly, if you find Colossians, verse 1, Colossians chapter 1, rather, and verse 19 and 20. When we hear this, for in him, that's Jesus, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And by the end of the course, you'll understand exactly how it is that God has done that and what it means that he has brought peace between him and the world through Jesus. Now, from, start, from the start right to the finish, we're going to be seeing in this course God's grace, the grace of God, and to see that everything depends upon that. Now, a good way to think of grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that is what we're going to be seeing. Now then, if you go into Genesis 1, we'll start at the very beginning. You'll remember when we were looking at the Bible as being the Word of God, we saw that one of the areas it covers is origins. It tells us how everything started. And first of all, we want to see a little bit about the origin of man to understand what and who man is, because the problem of sin affects man. Now then, first of all, Genesis 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, obviously, the us is because here we have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then, as a corollary to that, if you find chapter 2 and verse 7, when we read this, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, we're going to have a look at the Hebrew of that to really understand exactly what this means, because we're talking about a problem that affects mankind. The sin problem affects men and women. And we've got to understand the origin and the nature of man before we can start to understand the problem and the solution to the problem. Now, first of all, it says here that the Lord God formed man. Now, that word formed, yatsa, it means, in the Hebrew, it's a potter moulding clay. All right? There's inherent there a work of art. When a potter you know, is sort of going about his business. To him it's a work of art, and mankind is God's work of art. And it says here that the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Now, the word for ground in Hebrew is Adorma. Now, that's where the word Adam came from, comes from, and it means red earth or clay. So you see that God formed man. Man is just clay, but God formed him. God made a work of art when he created men and women. And then it says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now that word breath, neshorma, it also means spirit, all right? It can mean breath, it can mean wind, or it can mean spirit. And it's the same in the Greek, that you've got the same Greek words for wind and spirit and breath. Now here, what you've got more accurately is that, uh, that God breathed into his nostrils the breath or the spirit of life. And then, as a result of that, man became a living being. And that word being, nephesh, also translates in some version as soul. Now then, also in the Greek, the, the equivalent Greek word for soul is psyche, from which we get the word psychology. Psyche, the real you, all right. 
Now, what that gives us is this, and often you hear this the wrong way round in Christian teaching, but this is it, that man has a body and man has a spirit, but he is a soul. Now, can you see that? You have a body and you have a spirit, but you are a soul. Alright? Now then, I'm, what I'm going to show you now is that it's through the spirit that God breathed into Adam, it's through that spirit that Adam or man was able to have fellowship with God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Remember that when you have a human body plus a spirit, then you have a living soul, a being, you have a person created in the image of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, I want to show you this about the spirit. It's very important. Um, right, okay. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now then, can you see what Paul's saying here? He's quoting from Isaiah 64. Now then, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard. Now there are two of the five physical senses. There's the body, alright? You cannot experience God through your body, alright? And then he goes on, nor the heart of man conceived. And the heart of man, his personality, his emotions, the soul of the man, if you like. And it's not through the body, and it's not through the soul, but God has revealed through the spirit. So can you see that God created Adam, he formed his body, breathed a spirit into him, and when the human spirit was breathed into Adam, he came alive he became a living soul or a living being. But his direct experience and fellowship with God was through his spirit, not through the body, not through his soul, and in the soul we're talking about mind, emotions and will, etc., but through the spirit was his contact with God. Now go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and see something of what God said to him and part of his reason for creating Adam. Then it says, the Lord God took the man, Genesis 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. All right? Now then, uh, sorry, I'll keep reading. But, the, but of the tree, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now then, a couple of things there. In verse 15, God places Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he says that he must till the land and to keep the land. All right. Now that word keep, shorma, in the Hebrew, it means to hedge about or to guard and to protect. Now not only was Adam put in charge of the world, but he was also told to guard it. Now, what on earth is Adam guarding the earth from? There's only one possible answer, and we're going to see this character in a few minutes. So, uh, Adam was there partially to guard the world from Satan. All right, now we're going to see that in a few minutes. And then in verse 17, we come to the warning that God gives. And God says to him, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Now what God is doing here, Adam has been created with perfect free will because he's been created in the image of God, and God has free will. So Adam has free will. But what God is doing, he's drawing a line, and he's saying, Adam, do not go over that line, all right? And God is putting a line there to test Adam's obedience. Because Adam has been created with free will, remember that his experience had only been holiness and goodness. Adam had to be subjected to the possibility of evil. 
in order for him to have loved God of his own free will. All right. And so God simply draws the line and God simply says there's one tree and you must not eat the fruit of that tree. But there's something that we need to understand about what's going to happen to Adam if he does. Because God says, look, if you do go against me, if you disobey me in this one thing, then there's going to be a consequence. Now, we've seen that God says, in the day you eat of it, you shall die. Now, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. And I'm going to give you a literal translation. What the Hebrew says is this, God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, dying you shall die. Now can you see the difference? Not in the day you eat of it you shall die, but the Hebrew literally says, in the day you eat of it, dying you shall die. Now what it means is this, and we're going to see it, that for Adam to have sinned against God by eating that fruit from that tree, his spirit and remember, the spirit inside of him was his means of fellowship with God. His spirit inside of him would have immediately died. And as a result of that, later on, he would physically die as well. Now, can you see that? That when, if Adam is to sin, immediately his spirit inside of him will die, become non-functional, therefore he cannot receive anything from God at all, because we only receive from God through our spirit. Adam's spirit would die and become non-functional, and as a result of that, later on, he would physically die as well. Right, now having covered that, go to Genesis 3, and let's look at the origin of sin. We've seen Adam created and of course Eve came along a bit later we've seen the origin of man all right we've seen the situation he was in and we've seen the warning that God gave him now we're going to see actually the origin of sin now then first of all let's start with verse 1 and we'll read through this verse by verse now the serpent and here comes Satan on the scene remember that the angels and the rebellion amongst the angels led by Satan happened before creation it happened outside of time all right so when God created the universe Satan and the angels or some of the angels have already rebelled now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God has made he said to the woman did God say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Let's leave it there. The first thing that I want to look at is this. I want us to find out who is the Lord God. Now this is very important because if you just skip down to verse 8, we read this. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now here we have the Lord God who thus far has been giving Adam all his instructions. And later on we're going to see this Lord God walking in the garden. And I want to find out who it is. Alright. Now then, first of all, turn with me to John chapter 4. Keep your finger in Genesis 3 because we're going to be back there. Don't ask me, because I've only got Salvation Testament. <laughs> right, okay. Okay, right. John chapter 4 and verse 24. Alright. Now I'll read, we're asking, who is the Lord God, okay? Now then, God is spirit. Now this is Jesus talking about the Father. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now notice that, Jesus is talking about the Father, and he says that God is spirit. Bear that in mind, and go over to John chapter 6, and I'll read verse 46, when Jesus says this, He says, not that anyone has seen the Father, except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now, what Jesus is saying here of the Father is, firstly, is that no one has ever seen him. He is a spirit. Now, here's the point. The Lord God is actually walking in the garden. He's got a body. Therefore, it's not the Father, because the Father is spirit, and no man has ever seen him. So it's not the Father. Bearing that in mind, go to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. And we see another little something that Jesus said about the Spirit. Certain truth about the Spirit. 
verse 29. So let's ask, is it the Holy Spirit? Is the Lord God the Holy Spirit? Well, in Luke 24, verse 39, this is Jesus appearing to the disciples after he's been raised from the dead. And they get a bit frightened, thinking he's a ghost or a spirit. Now listen to what he says. He says, See my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So the Lord God isn't the Holy Spirit. He's not the Father, he's not the Spirit, because the Father and the Spirit are spirits. They don't have a body. Here, as I'm going to show you, the Lord God in Genesis chapter 3 is Jesus. That Adam and Eve are actually talking face to face with Jesus. Find Colossians chapter 1. I'll just read you some verses. You might not really have kind of put this, this thought together, but it's very important. Colossians 1 verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. Alright? Now an image is something you can see. An image is something that's there. It's subjective. It's not invisible. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 5. And we read this. This is Paul speaking. He says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Can you see that Jesus is the physical reality of the Godhead? That the Lord God, when he's walking in the garden, all right, it's Jesus in his physical pre-existence. And if you just go back to John's Gospel and John chapter 1 and verse 18, and we have a, a completely explicit statement of this, when John says this, No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. Now, can you see that therefore, in Genesis, when it talks about the Lord God, or in the Hebrew, Jehovah Elohim, as it is in the Hebrew, that when we're confronted with the Lord God, we are confronted with Jesus in his pre-existence, the second person of the Trinity. Now remember that Jesus, before he became a little baby and became a human being like us, he existed before then. He has always existed because he's God. But what I want you to understand is that the second person of the Trinity has always been physical. For instance, in the Old Testament, you get many examples of people who meet Jesus. For instance, Joshua in the Old Testament. Do you remember the man with the drawn sword outside of Jericho? And Joshua worships him. Now, who would, you know, it was God who he was worshipping. He was seeing Jesus in his pre-existence. Jacob, when he sort of had that fight with the man at Peniel, all right? And the man broke his thigh. And Jacob said, I've seen God face to face. Why? He was seeing Jesus in his pre-existence. And Isaiah, when he said, I saw the king high and lifted up in his train filled the temple, who was he seeing? He was seeing Jesus in his pre-existence. Now, what this means is this, that when the Bible says that we are created in the image of God, it means, yes, that we're spiritual creatures, because God is spiritual. Yes, it means that we have free will, because God has got free will. It means we can express ourselves, because God came. It means all that. But also, can you see that when the Bible says that we are created in the image of God, that is also a perfectly literal thing physically as well. Let me ask you a question. Where did the human design come from? Why are human beings designed the way they are? I'll tell you, because that's the way that the second person of the Trinity is. Our physical design has come from the image of God, Jesus in his pre-existence. Now, this is very important to see that, that here, Adam and Eve, their fellowship, their talking, 
they're kind of strolling around having a natter. All this they're doing with Jesus in his pre-existence, the Lord God. Now, bearing that in mind, look at what Satan now says to Eve. He gets Eve on his own, all right, because he's going to do his subtle thing. Now, listen to what he says. He says to Eve, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, can you see what he's done? He's got rid of Jesus. Who was it who said to Adam, you mustn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It was the Lord God. It was Jesus. Satan says to Eve, did God say? Now, can you see Satan is avoiding Jesus like the plague. He's cutting Jesus out. Now, what you've got here is that Satan is going to try to substitute the reality of fellowship that Adam and Eve have with the Lord, to substitute it for religion. And we're going to see that the great enemy of Christianity is religion, all right? And the way that Satan does this is that God plus man's works equals religion, all right? Whereas salvation is Jesus plus nothing. Therefore, what Satan does is always twofold. He keeps Jesus out of the picture. He keeps people dealing with a God out there. He keeps Jesus well out of the picture, and he tries to get people to doubt the Word of God. So therefore, his approach to Eve is this. Did God say, all right, casting an aspersion on God, but also leaving Jesus out. Now, can you see that, that Satan has cut Jesus out of the picture? That's always a sign that Satan is moving and that religion is slipping in to replace true Christianity and fellowship with God. Now, in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now, up to here, Eve is fine. No problem whatsoever, all right? But look at verse 3. This is still Eve speaking. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, two things. Can you see she's fallen in? She says, but God said... Can you see, she hasn't said, but the Lord God said. She said, but God said. Can you see, she's fallen in. Satan has taken Eve under his wing now. Eve is cutting Jesus out. Can you see, she's talking about the distant God. She's not talking about Jesus, who was appearing physically to her and having fellowship with her. And also, that, and she then says that God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Now, the Lord didn't say, neither shall you touch it. He simply said, you mustn't eat of it. Now, can you see what's happening here in Eve? She's got rid of Jesus. She's fallen for what Satan's doing. And also, she's getting legalistic. Because God didn't say you mustn't touch it. He just said you mustn't eat the fruit of it. Now, can you see that what happens exit Jesus, all right, and enter religion with all its legalism, all its rules, all its regulations, all it, don't touch this, don't touch that. Can you see what's happened? Eve here is being taken in. She's been taken away from fellowship with God, with the Lord, with Jesus himself, and now she's beginning to turn into a religious person with a distant God, all right, and who goes around saying, don't touch when God hadn't said that to them at all. All right. Now then, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. All right. Now here, Satan is just, I mean, he's directly contradicting the word of God. Can you see that it's escalating? Satan has started in with a little thing, and now, slowly but surely, it's getting more and more serious. Here, Satan is calling God a liar. It's as simple as that. He's contradicting everything that Jesus said. And then verse 5. This is still Satan talking. For God knows. Now, can you see, there's still no Jesus. It's not the Lord God. It's, for God. It just, it's just God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what Satan's now doing is that he's painting the picture to Eve 
that somehow that if Adam and Eve knew the difference between good and evil, that somehow God would be threatened. Can you see he's casting aspersions, almost as if God is insecure, can't let Adam and Eve know about good and evil, or they'll have my job, you see, and that it's getting worse and worse and worse, all right. Now then, having got to this point, Satan has been working on Eve, all right, she's taken in a load of lies about God, all right, she, she's believing what Satan has said rather than what the Lord has said to her. And now in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. All right. Now, no mention of that. She thinks that if she eats of the fruit, she's going to sort of be like God. I mean, she's been taken in by what the devil has told her. All right. So she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Now then, what have we got? Here Eve does the very thing, the one thing that Jesus had told them they weren't to do, and she eats the fruit. Now, um, a sort of a common fallacy is that it was an apple. The Bible doesn't say it was an apple, all right? It just says it was a fruit. Anyway, it couldn't have been an apple because it was the pear underneath that caused all the trouble in any case. All right, but she eats the fruit. Now, what happens to her the minute she eats the fruit? I'll tell you. Her spirit within her died and became non-functional. Now, the moment she ate the fruit, remember, God said to Adam, dying, you shall die, all right? Immediately, Eve has eaten the fruit, she's disobeyed God, and the judgment on that is her spirit dies inside of her, it's non-functional. Eve can no longer have fellowship with the Lord. She is out of fellowship with God because of her sin. Her spirit is dead. She cannot receive from God in any way at all. She's incapable of that. And also, as a result of that, immediately, physical decay and death has set into her body. So that from this moment onwards, one day, having died in her spirit, she will then go on to die physically. And then Adam follows suit. All right, she gives the fruit to Adam and he does it and the same <coughs> happens to him. But it's important to realize this. Eve was deceived and Adam sinned. Now, the Bible says it that way round. The Bible, as we're going to see, blames Adam, all right? <coughs> and here's the difference. Eve, after all, she sinned, but she'd been taken in very cleverly by the devil. The thing about Adam is this. Adam wasn't there to be beguiled by Satan, all right? Adam hadn't been fed with any of the lies or anything. He simply comes along, all right, and Eve gives him the fruit and he eats it. Can you see that whereas Eve was deceived, for Adam, it is deliberate disobedience to the Lord. Can you see? Eve had come under the sway of Satan's lies, but for Adam, it was a cold-blooded sort of thing. He had to make a decision. He had to choose either between his wife or God, all right? And he chose his wife. He put something else before the Lord. And therefore, Adam, in the scripture, is said to have sinned. So then, they're both in the same boat now. Their spirits have died within them. They cannot have fellowship with God, all right? And as a result of that, they are now subject to physical death. But something else has happened as well. Their human nature, which up to this point has been absolutely godly, has now become a fallen, sinful nature, all right? Now, here's the important thing to realize. From that point in history onwards, the Bible tells us that that sinful nature and dead spirit is passed on genetically through the man. It was passed on through Adam, and it was passed on subsequently through every other man in history to his children. Let's see that, because this is important. If you go to Romans chapter 5, and certain verses that we're going to read from it, Romans chapter 5. Uh, first of all, verse 12. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, 
and so death spread to all men because all men sinned but can you see sin came into the world through one man alright go up to verse 15 for if many died through one man's trespass can you see that many died through one man's trespass go down to verse 17 if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man alright verse 18 then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men and down to verse 19 for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners alright now then just go over to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22 when Paul says this for as in Adam all die alright for as in Adam all die now what does this mean it means this remember Adam and Eve have sinned their spirits inside of them have died they are non-functional they are out of fellowship with God they now have a sinful nature rather than an ordinary human nature their human nature has become a sinful human nature <laughs> alright and now because their spirits are dead they are subject to physical death now the thing is this that all those attributes were passed on genetically through Adam now then that means that you inherited from your father a sin nature a dead spirit you've got a spirit but it's dead it's non-functional alright you inherited a sin nature from your father you inherited a dead non-functioning spirit from your father and also you have inherited the certainty of dying physically alright now then this is exactly what the Bible means when it talks about being born in trespasses and in sin can you see that 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 is your state when you were born and because it's passed on through the man everyone has been subject since the time of Adam can you see all Adam's children and from then on every person who has ever been born into the world with one exception as we will see later on in this course and remember the one exception didn't have a human father all right but because the sin nature and dead spirit and physical death is passed on genetically through the father every human being throughout history is subject to it all right now then back to genesis 3 now let's look at verse 7 we left them where they both eaten the fruit together and it says then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons now here you have shame alright it's the first time there's ever been anything like this in human experience thus far they are ashamed they're aware that they're naked and they feel ashamed now can you see the first thing that happens after they've been cut off from fellowship with God is that religion creeps in because what they do is they realize that they're naked they're ashamed they know that they are in a wrong state before God so immediately what they do is they tie together some fig leaves now here you have religion and religion is man's attempt to cover or to deal with his sin problem can you see that so religion is salvation by works religion is when men and women realize that they have some kind of problem in relation to some kind of God but that problem is solved by their own efforts alright so here Adam and Eve they realize they're naked they realize the shame of their sin so they sew fig leaves together they try to cover their own sinful actions by the works that they do alright now then in verse 8 and 9 and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day now get the picture quite literally here's Jesus breezing through the garden he's out for a walk it's Jesus and his pre-existence is superb they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man and said to him where are you now then notice here is grace that Jesus takes the initiative with Adam and Eve he knows that they've sinned he knows they've done it 
But can you see he goes looking for them? Alright? Religion goes looking for God. In Christianity, in salvation, we have the exact opposite. That God comes looking for sinful men and women. So Jesus takes the initiative. He doesn't leave them to their plight. We're going to see there's nothing that they can do about their plight. But the Lord doesn't leave them. He gets in there ready to help them. And when Adam and Eve hear him approaching, they run and hide. Now, can you see the contrast? How different it is now. Why is it different? Because their spirits within in them are dead. They have a sinful nature. They cannot receive a fellowship from the Lord anymore. They are incapable of it. Therefore, Jesus comes. And whereas before they'd have run up to him and he'd have run up to them and hugs all round and a few jokes and let's go for a walk or let's go for a swim. Can you see the contrast that there is now? They run away from their very, very best friend. All right. Notice as well that after they've run away, that the Lord calls Adam. Doesn't call Eve, he calls to Adam. Can you see that the Lord holds Adam responsible? Not Eve, and the Bible holds Adam. It holds the man, all right? The man being the head of the house. And whereas, okay, one could argue there are privileges of being head of the house, the point is the head of the house carries the can, okay? And here Jesus calls Adam because he holds Adam responsible. Now look at verse 10 and look what happened. And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now can you see that Adam has got into a bit of religion here because he's done his fig leaves, isn't he? And his nakedness is covered. But what I want you to notice is this that when he was confronted by the Lord in all his glory, even though his own attempts with the fig leaves, he thought they were okay, when confronted with the Lord himself, Adam and Eve instinctively know that the fig leaves hadn't done the job. Can you see what I mean? Or they wouldn't have run away from Jesus. Now, this is the point of religion, that it may look good, but the point is that when people die and when eventually they stand before God, they'll discover it's too late because they'll be before the Lord in all his glory and then they will instinctively know, they won't need to be told, they will instinctively know that their religion and their attempts at self-improvement are absolutely no good with God. So can you see that Adam and Eve had covered the results of their sin, and yet when confronted with Jesus, they instinctively knew that their attempts were absolutely useless. All right. And then we have Jesus, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now here, Adam gets asked the one question that he did not want to get asked. All right. You see. And Jesus, can you see, he goes straight to the point with Adam. There's no mucking about here whatsoever. Now, this is conviction of sin. And, of course, it's vital to salvation. And the reason that the Lord always goes straight to the heart of the problem is that because without man's admission of his guilt before God, he is not going to see the need of salvation, and therefore he's never going to get saved. So Jesus will be really straight to the point, no mucking about with somebody, because people have got to realise their sin problem. As it's so often been said that today, I mean, for instance, we shy away from, uh, you know, sort of hellfire preaching. We Unless we're telling people what Jesus saves from, you see. So people have got to realise the problem in order to realise that there's an answer to the problem. But if people aren't told the problem, if they're not confronted with their sinfulness, then they're not going to see the need for salvation, and therefore they're not going to be saved. So as soon as Jesus gets to Adam, the first thing he asks him, he convicts him immediately of sin. All right. And then in verse 12, look at Adam's reaction, because this is amazing. The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, notice what Adam does. First, he's been convicted of sin. Jesus said, you, You've eaten the fruit, haven't you? And he had. There's no getting around it. You've eaten the fruit, haven't you? 
Now then, Adam, if he was being honest, would have said, yes, all right? But notice what he did say. He immediately blames Eve, all right? I mean, Jesus says, you've eaten the fruit. So what does Adam do? He starts going on about Eve, you know? He blames her. And then, having said that, he says, you know, the woman whom thou gavest me. Then he blames Jesus for creating her. Can you see? He's sort of saying, well, if you hadn't given me, you know, if you hadn't created her, then she wouldn't have given and I wouldn't have, you see. Now, do you see, this is the absolute opposite of true repentance. Repentance is when you simply acknowledge, yes, it is true, I have sinned. No excuses, no buts, no, oh, well, you know, okay, I know that, um, I know that I reacted a bit bad in that situation, but, but look what they said to me. You know, can, can you say that's not true repentance? True repentance is simply when we acknowledge that we're wrong. So Jesus comes up to Adam and he says, you've eaten the fruit, haven't you? And Adam, he's got every excuse under the sun. Well, Eve made me. Uh, it wasn't my fault. She did it. And anyway, if you hadn't created her, this, this wouldn't have happened. So he's, he's blaming anyone and everyone except himself. And then in verse 13, all right, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. So she blames the devil. Can you see? Look, what you've got here, Adam blames Eve and then Jesus, and Eve decides there's only one person left and she blames the devil. Now, can you see, all you've got here is, at, you know, is passing the buck. That's all they're doing. They've sinned. It was Adam and Eve who sinned. No one else and when confronted with it, they pass the buck. Now, what we're going to see is that with all this passing of the buck that was going on, that salvation is that Jesus accepted the buck. This is the incredible thing. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the devil. Now, what we're going to see in salvation is that on the cross, God was saying, all right, if they won't take the blame, then I will take the blame. There's that American president who had that thing on his desk, the buck stops here. That's exactly the same. On, on God's desk in heaven regarding sin, there's a thing, the buck stops here, all right? And he dealt with it. And that is what we're going to be looking at. Now then, so we've seen that Adam and Eve got out of fellowship with God, or, to put it another way, what I call the great divide. And I want to just look at a little bit more in detail at exactly what this great divide between man and God is, all right? Because we're going to look in detail at man's plight. Now, in actual fact, the great divide is a fourfold thing. We're going to see four things which separated Adam and Eve from God the moment that they sinned, all right? Now, think of these as having God over there and man over here, and between them, picture it as four electric fences. Now, each one of these electric fences are 200 feet high, and they're charged with 58,000 volts. The point is that these electric fences are absolutely unpassable, all right, and there are four of them, or for any Pink Floyd fans, all in all, it's all just bricks in the wall. I don't care the picture. I've, I've chosen, all right, this thing about the electric fences. Now, the thing we're going to see is this, that there are four fences between God and man as a result of Adam, Adam and Eve going into sin and going against what God told them. But the thing is this, there are four of them. Now, man, on his own, cannot even get over any individual one electric fence, let alone all four of them. Can you see the point? Man can't get over one, but there are four there, that man is absolutely helpless. Now, what are these electric fences? What are these four barriers, if you like? Well, firstly, the first barrier is this, that the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, remember, their natures became sinful natures and from that point onwards men and women are all born in a state of being in slavery to their sin nature uh, turn with me to Romans 7 and I'm going to show you scriptures for each of these and the first barrier is that Adam and Eve became subject to being in absolute slavery 
to their sinful nature. And that remember, that was passed on to every subsequent human being through the Father genetically. Now then, Romans 7 and verse 14, all right? And see how Paul expresses this. He says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good. All right. Then he goes on verse 14, We know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. All right. Then in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now can you see Paul's dilemma? He's speaking as a human being, and he says the problem is this. He can see the things that are right in his mind, but he can't do them. And he can see the things that are wrong, and he wants to avoid them, but he can't help doing them. Can you see, every man, woman, and child is in absolute slavery to their sin nature. Any kind of reform inside of themselves is absolutely beyond them. And then if you turn to John's Gospel in chapter 8, and we'll see Jesus speaking about this. John 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now there you have the first electric fence. That mankind, since the fall of Adam, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, mankind became slaves to a sin nature. Now there's the first barrier between them and God. The second electric fence is this. Adam and Eve, from that point onwards, and remember their children sinned and everyone since then has sinned, but not only do we have a sin nature that we're in slavery to, but therefore we have personal sins which separate us from a righteous God. Uh, Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 and verse 23, when Paul says, Since all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Now there you have it. Because we've got personal sins, we have all sinned individually, that separates us from a righteous God. Uh, go back to Isaiah, and find Isaiah 59 and verse 2, when God says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear. Now there is the second electric fence, or the second aspect of this great divide. But there's a third one, and the third one is this, that because God is holy, God's holiness has two parts to it, his righteousness, I've just mentioned that, but also his justice. Now then, because God is perfect justice, Therefore, he demands that the penalty of sin be paid. And we've seen that the penalty of sin is that you have a dead spirit. But because you have a dead spirit, one day you will physically die and be separated from God, the other side of death. And God's justice demands that that penalty for sin be paid. Alright, uh, Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. And if you find chapter 18 and verse 4, and you get this. Ezekiel 18. If you can't, it, it, yeah, it doesn't matter. You can just listen to them. Behold, all souls are mine. This is the Lord speaking. All souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul that sins shall die. Now God's righteousness demands that that penalty on sin be carried out. And then back to Romans, and Romans chapter 6, verse 23, when it says, For the wages of sin is death. Now then, God's justice demands that the price for our sin be paid. There is the third, if you like, electric fence that has to be got over, and yet there's nothing that man can do about it. And then the last one is this, the fact that because Adam sinned, from that point onwards, 
babies were born with dead spirits. Because their spirit wasn't functioning, Adam and Eve died on the spot, and their children from that point onwards, and all their children, all their children, their, their spirits within them were dead when they were born. So therefore, there's no way that they can have fellowship with God, because their spirit is dead. And there's the fourth barrier. Just to see that, if you go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul says this, Ephesians 2, verse 1, when Paul says, And you he made alive when you were dead through trespasses and sins. Now what's he referring to? Because their spirits was dead within them. And because they were dead in their spirit, they could have no fellowship with God whatsoever. Uh, John's Gospel and chapter 4. And verse 24. And Jesus says this, For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. But men and women, as babies, are born with a dead spirit. Can you see there's no way that there can be fellowship between them and God? Go to one, um, John 5, sorry, John chapter 5 and verse 24. And Jesus says this, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Can you see that? Because the spirit is dead. And as we're going to see in the course, that as, you know, we're going to see how each of these barriers or each of these electric fences was removed when Jesus died on the cross. And of course we'll see how when you believe on Jesus, what happens? You're born again, that your spirit comes back to life. So then, ending the story in verse back in Genesis 3, eventually what happens is that Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden completely. But we're just interested now in verse 15 when the Lord says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now here you have the Lord speaking to the serpent. And here, right in the midst of the creation of all the mess of sin in Genesis 3, we have the promise of one who would come to undo everything that Satan had done, alright? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now there is the promise of salvation. Now then, what we are going to see in the rest of this series is this. We've seen the four electric fences, or the four things which make up this great divide that, be, that came between man and God after Adam and Eve sinned. And what we're going to see is how, through the death of Jesus, the life and the death of Jesus, that each one of those electric fences was just flattened, dealt with completely. And in fact, we're going to see that the barrier isn't there anymore, that that great divide has now been gulfed. And we're going to see how Jesus did each separate fence, how he dealt with it and disposed of it, all right? And that's what we're going to be seeing in the rest of this series. Now, before I finish, there are just two other supplementary things that I want to put in at this point, because I think they're important. The first one is this, that tonight we've seen the origin of sin and the origin of death. Now, we've seen that these things are grounded in the history that the Old Testament gives us, all right, in Genesis 1 to 3. So what we've seen tonight is that, for instance, death came into the world as a result of Adam and Eve sinning against God. Now, also, in the New Testament, this is reaffirmed, that death, has come into the universe because Adam and Eve sinned against God. But here's the vital thing. It's grounded in the literal history of Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Now then, can you see that if Genesis chapters 1 to 3 are not literal history, then we have a phenomenon in the universe of death. 
and there's no way for us to know how death came into the universe. Can you see what I'm saying? If people are going to say of Genesis that it's kind of spiritual, that really it was evolution, and Adam and Eve is just a story, can you see they have no explanation whatsoever for how death came into the world? And the great problem being is that if we evolved, and if Genesis isn't literally true, then if we evolved, then death was working in the universe millions of years before mankind even came on the scene. Now, if the Bible tells us that physical death was a result of sin, then if you've got physical death before Adam and Eve or mankind even came on the scene, can you see it's not just that we've got a Bible that's wrong, but we've got a Bible that's downright misleading. And also, we can have no answer whatsoever to the problem of death in the universe. Can you see what I'm saying? There is no way one can play around with the early chapters of the Bible. There is no way that one can say they're just mythology or they're just poetry. If they're anything other than literal history, if Genesis 1 to 3 are symbolic, then the point is that the rest of the Bible falls to bits as well, because the New Testament doctrines are based on the Old Testament history of Genesis. Can you see what I'm saying? So that there is, I mean, a classic example that with the Bible you take it literally cover to cover, as I was saying last time, obviously except for idiom and stuff like that, but you take the history literally or if you don't take it literally in all aspects, then it just falls to bits, all right? Because you've got a thing that if Genesis 1 to 3 is just figurative, then we have no way of knowing what, why death came into the world. And if the New Testament is wrong about death coming in as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, if it's wrong about that, then what else is it wrong about? Can you see? We're absolutely lost. And then the second thing I want to say is this, and, and this is an angle that we're not going to look at salvation from this particular angle, but I want to chuck it in because it's a good angle for you to think about it just in your own studying time or whatever, and it's this. That in the study tonight, we've seen that man was, that separation happened on three levels that sin caused separation of three different kinds. Firstly, that man was separated from God. Now that was the first separation. And because of that, spiritual problems entered man's experience. All right? Now, the second thing that we saw is that not only was Adam separated from God, but also he was separated from himself. Now what do I mean by that? I mean this, that Adam began to experience psychological and emotional problems as a result of his sin. Can you see there was a division in himself? He was no longer a fully integrated person psychologically and emotionally. For instance, as soon as he sinned, he felt shame. Can you see that's a psychological, that's an emotional reaction? Okay. He experienced fear. When Jesus came, he ran away. Um, he experienced the fact that they were naked, and he was ashamed that they were naked. The twistedness of sin is this. There was no need for them to be ashamed because they were naked. They were man and wife. Can you see that? How twisted it was. You see, and immediately now, Adam is experienced sexual sort of um, sort of modesty with his own wife. Can you see it was valid that they were naked together, but suddenly sex hang-ups come into human experience. Now, can you see that as a result of Adam's sin, he's been separated from God, and there you get spiritual problems. He's separated from himself and he now has emotional and psychological problems. And it's very interesting that in Psalm 86, verse 11, remember, what I'm saying is that as a result of sin, we are separated from ourselves. This divide inside of us happens. Now, in Psalm 86, verse 11, David says this, Unite my heart to fear your name. Now, isn't that interesting? That David says, unite my heart, because he knows that there's a division, a separation inside of him. All right. Now then, the point is this, that thirdly, 
because Adam is now separated from himself and he's subject to emotional and psychological sort of problems, etc., that also, as a result of that, he is now separated from his neighbour. He takes his frustration out on Eve. Can you see that? He blames her. And therefore, you get social and political problems. Man interacting with his fellow man. Now, can you see that order? And can you see how every problem that anyone ever experiences, no matter what type of it, what type of problem it is, it's in one of those things. It's either a spiritual problem separated from God, it's a psychological problem separated from yourself, or it's a social problem or a political problem, man separated from each other. But can you see the order? Adam is separated from God, he's separated from himself, and as a result of that, separated from his neighbour. Now, bearing that in mind, isn't it fascinating that when Jesus was asked to sum up the Ten Commandments and the law of God, he said this, you shall love the Lord your God and your neighbour as yourself. Now, can you see that's exactly the same order? We must love God and therein lie the answers to our spiritual problems. But Jesus said, love your neighbour as yourself. Now, that implies until you have love for yourself, you cannot have love, love for your neighbour. Can you see? Until you're integrated within yourself, you cannot be integrated with other people. So, therefore, can you see the problem of sin, separation from God, self, others, and the way that salvation is the answer to that through love. Loving God, loving ourselves and loving our neighbours is the answer, is the healing to the sin problem. And of course from uh, after tonight, the next few studies, we're going to see exactly and precisely how the problem was dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And then move on to see how the benefits of what he did on the cross are made available to us personally in our own experience.